This is Mental Maps, a podcast about navigating the mind. My name is Dr. John Waddell. I'm a psychiatric nurse practitioner, good health counselor, and host of this show. The content of this show is focused on creating a better understanding about the mind and how you can achieve optimal well-being. Welcome back to Mental Maps. As always, I hope this finds you well, no matter what season that you're in. Uh, if you've been following with us, Today is the, the last episode of our root cause of mental illness, the five-factor cause of mental illness. We're going to open up with just kind of talking about all the things that we've discussed thus far, just a small review, and then really jump into this final concept or the last reason I believe that uh, brains get sick, and that is the environmental uh, mental illness. So just to kind of go back real quick, just a quick review if you're just now joining us. Highly recommend to jump back into the other episodes just so you get a little bit more detail on it. But we've been talking about how brains get sick, and the reasons brains get sick is it's just this chronic exacerbation of human emotion many times. But we know that there are these different root causes, and so we know that there's these physiological causes for the reason the brains get sick. And so whether that be things such as Lyme disease and other viruses or stuff with your heart or stuff with your lungs or certain things with inflammation or your gut microbiome are all reasons that your brain can become unwell. And so if you treat these underlying causes, these mental issues will resolve over time. And then we moved into something called the genetic causes. And so we know that genes have a big impact on mental illness. And we know that there are many people who just have a genetic predisposition. And sometimes it's triggered by certain things. And sometimes it just happens. And so we know that there are these genetic causes. And so it's believed that if you can create more protective factors around you, if you can do other um, lifestyle modifications, diet modifications, things such as that, you can prevent many times from those genes clicking on but we also know there are these serious mental illnesses that can be triggered by certain genes and so then we know that probably one of the most profound ones is just the the psychosocial cause of mental illness and so that's just this chronic life stress whether it be trauma whether it be life whether it be just the chronic exacerbation of human emotion that leads to you being categorized as depressed and anxious and so we see where medicines for people who are in this thing can sometimes decrease the the overall exacerbation of the emotion but things such as therapy and and exercise and a lot of different lifestyle things can help people learn to cope with their illness or cope with the emotions that keep them from having the illness and then also treating the illness so physiological you have the genetics you have the psychosocial and then last week we discussed or the last episode we discussed just nutritional causes for mental illness, whether that be a deficiency in certain vitamins, whether it be a lack of access to certain foods, whether it be the type of foods you're eating, whether it be the amount of food that you're eating, all of these are a major cause for the reason that a brain can become sick. And so if you find yourself eating in these ways, you can make these diet modifications, you can use these vitamins, and then you can find that your brain will become well and you no longer have those issues. And so that brings us to this final episode, and that is the environmental cause for mental illness. So you may think like, when I'm saying environmental, what does that mean? And so what I'm talking about is the environment that you're living in, your ecosystem as a human being. And so that is the, the things around you, not the stress of life around you, not the people in your life, um, not certain resources in your life. Some of those will be talked about, but not all resources. What we're talking about is the true environment. That is nature. That is sun. That is air. 
that is water. These basic environmental factors that are around us that have a huge impact on our mental health. We see this across cultures where certain parts of nature and certain parts of our environment not only make brains sick, but help brains get well. And so we're going to kind of talk about what that even means today. So we're focusing on the natural world. And I think I'm going to do a small disclaimer here, which I think there's really this is really important. There's only so much you can control in your environment. Ultimately, we don't decide where we're born at. Uh, and until you're an adult, you really can't decide where you live at. And even after then, certain resources and certain challenges in your life may impact where you live and where you go and what you do. And so knowing that going into this, there are people in our world who don't have adequate air. They don't have adequate access to nature. They don't have, have adequate access to sun sometimes. And so knowing that, just as we know that with the nutritional concept of this, is that we're going to talk about, one, how you can get the best of what you've got, but then also being able to expand on the importance of it, but also knowing that, unfortunately, for around the world, some of these things can be a challenge to obtain. So just a quick disclaimer as we open this up. So the first concept, so as I said earlier, we have nature. And so we're going to talk about what nature is. I define it in a different way. And then we have the sun, we have the air, and we have water. And so nature, what what we're considering nature is trees, grass, flowers, animals, bugs, all these things that are our like an ecosystem that's around us that we can touch that are here. And so we know that these experiences in our life, out in nature, are so important, not only to our overall brain development, but for to keeping our brains from being sick. There was a phenomenal study uh, conducted by uh, Devon and colleagues in Barcelona, Spain, back in 2015, that found that exposure to green, green meaning grass and trees, exposure to green, had a decrease in inattention for children and an increase in overall brain development for children eight years or younger. So if you have an eight-year-old kid, what they found is they put some within a green area and not in a green area based on where they at, where they lived and their the amount of time out in sunshine, or not in sunshine, but out in nature, and the green is what they called it. And they found that kids who had more exposure to this not only had a decrease in their inattention, but they had an increase in their overall brain development as a child. So we know that this nature this tree, this grass, all these things have a huge impact on just our overall brain development. And we know that over time, you know, as human humans have urbanized and we've, you know, went up rather than out. And so now we see these monster apartment complexes and these huge subdivisions and these concrete jungle jungles, we as humans have begun to separate ourselves from nature. And we see this in all over the world, not just in America, where there are certain areas in our world that there's just not a lot of green. Um, and some people can prefer that for a little while. They can prefer being in that concrete jungle and living that lifestyle. And, and you may be able to, but we do know the more that you're separated from the green, the more that you're separated from nature, the more likely you are to become unwell. And this led to a, a really interesting term that's kind of been a, a pop culture term for a while now called nature deficit disorder. Uh, nature deficit disorder was coined by uh, Richard Love, who wrote a book called The Last Child in the Woods. And what the whole book really discusses is how the kid can be separated from nature. And when this happens, you have 
all of these challenges that occur for the kid, whether it be a decrease in your overall sensories, whether it's an impact in brain development, whether it's an impact in the ability to problem solve, there are all of these challenges. And so they, he believes that many children today have what's called a nature deficit disorder. They have been deficient in their nature. And so because of that, now their brains are unwell. And I think we also see this in adults. For many adults, it's really easy to get up, get in your car, go to work, come home, cook dinner, watch Netflix, go to sleep. And, and you do that day in and day out. And then by the time you get to Saturday or Sunday, even if you get those days off, you find yourself sleeping later. You find yourself staying in and binge watching TV more, maybe going to the bar or doing things like that. And, and you're so separated from nature that when was the last time you put your feet in the grass without shoes on? When was the last time you just stood in the middle of an area where there's trees around you? And one of the things that a lot of the urban areas have done is they've at least tried to create parks. You see this in New York, you see this in Chicago, you see this in LA, where there are these parks around. And even though it's not this huge natural forest or it's not a beach or it's not uh, some great mountain, it's at least grass and it's trees and it's animals and it's bugs and it's the nature world that, w- that you have. And so we, we see where if you are separated from this, not only does it impact your overall brain development, but I believe it has a big impact on you having depression and anxiety because the alternative to nature is isolation. The alternative to nature is being indoors, minimal interaction with just our outside world. And so we are, one of the, we are the only culture, only generation that has even been have the ability to have this problem. To have a home for for many people, to have a home with a roof and windows and doors and central heat and air and not have these nature experiences. So we know for some people, this is where their depression and anxiety can come from. Uh, Another reason in the environment while people may become mentally unwell or even mentally ill is the sun. The sun is a major factor in overall mental health. We have to utilize the sun. And for a long time, the sun has kind of got a, a bad rap because of can it cause skin cancer? What does that look like? Are you going to get sunburn and, and all these different things? But we know everything is in, revolves around the sun. We know our world revolves around the sun. Our overall circadian rhythm revolves around the sun. We know that between the sun and the moon, there is all this movement within in nature and the world. And so it moves in so many ways. And so ultimately, to think that we are separate from that is... A fallacy. One of the biggest things you get from the sun, this kind of goes back to our nutrition podcast last week or last episode, was vitamin D. Vitamin D is so, so, so important for you to be able to have adequate brain functioning, to have adequate bone health, to have adequate muscular health. It does all these different things in the in the grand scheme of vitamins in themselves. And so we know so many people you see are on these vitamin D supplements. And we do know some people may not be able to get it from the sun. But there's a lot of people who are on a vitamin D pill that if they were able to go outside and get sunshine on a regular basis, that vitamin D pill is not needed. We know that vitamin D is more bioavailable on our skin than it is in our gastrointestinal tract, meaning that you need less time in the sun to get the vitamin D than you would of that overall pill that you're taking in. So the sun gives us vitamin D. As we talked about before, the vitamin D deficiencies can lead to people finding themselves very depressed or very anxious and having these abnormalities. So getting vitamin D from the sun can be a major cause of mental illness. 
Another one is just the ability to see the sunrise and the sunset and just seeing the sun in itself. The sun was the original alarm clock. It was the original clock, the sundial and all the things that came from that. The sun and the moon were really big in that from an ancestral perspective. And so when we're not getting sunshine, when we're not seeing that sun, when maybe we get in, this is kind of a big thing right now as, as the time has changed and we were currently in we fell back an hour and so it gets darker earlier. There's many people who get up in the morning and I, I've been in this place before in my career where you get up, you're in the office before the sun comes up. By the time you walk outside the office, the sun is down. And so your only experience from the sun, unless you've taken that break, is through a window. So the sun, you've got to get out and see that sunshine because I know for me, I can get really down if I'm not getting adequate sun. Like I can feel it. And I know there are a lot of other people too. And with that chronic experience of that, you see people become quite depressed and quite down. And we know the sun, outside of just an overall circadian rhythm, biological clock kind of a perspective, we know the sun helps release positive neurochemicals. We know that. We know that serotonin and dopamine and, and all these other um, hot topic neurotransmitters that we talk about that are related in so many emotions and functions and everything are implicated on the sun. The sun can do that. I mean, think about how well you can feel on a nice sunny day uh, when you walk outside and that sun hits you. You know, I think about uh, maybe sitting on the beach or sitting on the deck and as the, let's say there's a cloud over that sun and the cloud begins to fade away and that sun kind of just washes over you. That is how awesome the sun can be. And if you're not getting that on a regular basis, there's a really good chance your brain can become unwell. But probably the most interesting one of the environmental concepts is air. Now, when you think air, you're like, how does my air impact my mental health? Nature kind of makes sense. If I'm really far away from all the, the positive things that our ancestors grew up on and I live inside a lot, it can become pretty difficult. And that makes sense where your brain can become sick. And if I'm not getting good sunshine, I'm not getting certain vitamins and I'm not doing these things. And so my environmental has made me unwell. But how would air do this? And so when I'm talking air, I'm talking what you breathe. So we're not talking about like the biological causes that we talked about in episode one, where maybe you have COPD or some type of lung dysfunction that keeps you from getting adequate air from a lung perspective. I'm talking about the air that you breathe. And so we know, as I said, that physiological causes can fall can fall into this we know that the copd can fall into this we know that asthma can fall into this we know mold for many people who live in in townhomes or in apartments or in old homes you find themselves feeling you know having mold and so that mold gets into their body and they become unwell and they get a different home and they that improves or viruses but that goes into that physiological cause you take away the virus you take a, you treat the copd you get out of the mold the illness improves and now you're better we're talking about two major concepts, the quality and the quantity of your air. When we talk about quality, we're talking about is the air you're consuming clean? There's been some really great research coming out of China and Japan about air quality and mental health. Wang and colleagues in 2018 published a study in the Environmental International that found that certain particulate matter, meaning like air pollution, that exposure increased hospitalization for people with depression. And so they found that people who had depression, when the air pollution was higher, there was an increase in the overall hospitalization rate 
for people with depression compared to not. And not hospitalization for physical health, but hospitalization for suicidal ideation and trying to hurt yourself. So these people identified that clearly if you are if you're depressed or maybe you were finding yourself feeling sad, this is an elevation that leads you into beginning unwell and becoming maybe a pathological illness. We also know that the, the study found that exposure to these, these matters at a young age will impact your overall brain development. So for these people who may be depressed, they may have been experiencing poor air, poor air for a long time. And over time, they have already begun to form this illness. And then as it increases throughout the year, now they go to the hospital more. So clearly, the matter, the particulate matter, has a big impact on what's in there. So you may think, like, how does this happen? Like, how would air pollution impact your brain? We know that the air pollution, this matter that exists within the air, as it's breathed in, is disseminated throughout the body. And a study conducted by Muhan Kumar in 08 found that this matter then leads to inflammation in the brain. And this inflammation in the brain then leads to abnormal neurotransmission. And abnormal neurotransmission we know is one of the reasons that the brains get sick. That's why our, our chronic exacerbations of emotion become higher. We know that 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 then leads to us maybe experiencing emotions at a higher level or the inability to cope. So the quality of your air, if you are consuming poor quality air, there is a risk that you are going to be unwell. And so if you can find a way to get that good quality air, you're going to find a, a decreased risk of depression. So that's the quality concept. But even more interesting is the quantity concept. Not quantity as in I can't breathe well, but how much air is around you. Researchers found that the higher the altitude, meaning the higher you are above sea level as a human being, there is a higher risk for depression. Suicide is disproportionately higher, profoundly disproportionately higher in the Rocky Mountain areas of the United States compared to any other part of the country. So you have this beautiful landscape, the beautiful mountains and the trees and the snow and the adventure and the climbing, yet there is more suicide in these areas than in any other place in America. Even though the Rocky Mountains are identified as the happiest people in the United States, they have the highest suicide rate of any American culture, American tribe, if you will. And research has found that people who live at higher sea level are even at higher risk. So they found that people between 2,000 and 3,000 feet, living at 2,000 elevation, 2,000 feet elevation to 3,000 feet elevation, were the highest at attempting suicide compared to any other people, not only in the country, but within that sector of the Rocky Mountains. And so you may think, why? So why is this occurring? Why do people who live in these beautiful, amazing places that are people around them are so happy, yet they have the highest suicide rate of any anywhere in the country? And what we know is that this chronic low blood oxygen because of the high altitude, high altitude meaning there's going to be less oxygen available, available can lead to a lot of challenges occurring in the brain you're not getting adequate oxygen to the brain and if we're not getting adequate oxygen to the brain the cells in the brain and, and all the concepts of our cell are not operating in the way that they need to and then this leads to depressive symptoms and ultimately a higher suicidal ideation compared to other parts of the world and so there's there's been great research to show how disproportionately this is 
and that these people are at much higher risk because of this chronic low blood oxygen. They're getting sunlight even in certain parts of the year. They're not in a desert to where there's not certain things of water and that type of thing. So we know, we know that the quantity of air that you can consume has a direct effect on you being depressed and if you could be suicidal later on. And then the last thing is water. We know that one, being around water can be helpful. We know that many people do well being around water. Uh, for some people, water can generate fear. But I'm talking more about drinking water. And so not as much about like the nutritional concept as we talked about before. Are you consuming enough water? You know, We know that that can do that. But what is in your water? We have seen over the past probably 10 years where there is a vast amount of what we would just consider stuff in our tap water as Americans and in other cultures as well. And what we found is many of these, many of these substances lead to chronic inflammation. And this chronic inflammation then creates these biological changes in the brain. So yes, just as with the quality air concept, you have a biological change. That biological change is not caused by a persistent illness. That biological change is caused by something in the environment. And if you can change that in the environment, so you change the quality of the air you consume or you change the amount of water or the type of water you consume rather, you're going to see that there's going to be a decrease in anxiety and depression because of the decrease in inflammation. We've seen this throughout studies where the people who have inflammation are much more likely to be depressed. We know that depression is caused by inflammation and we know that certain things in water can lead to that. Now there's not a ton of research on what of these particles can cause it, but we do know that it's there and we know that there is a building amount of momentum going to trying to figure out what this looks like. So this environmental cause that we talked about here, so we have our nature, the trees and the grass and the flowers and the animals and the bugs and a lack thereof can lead to depression and anxiety and just your brain being unwell. We know that the sun and not getting good sunlight and adequate sunlight and seeing the sun go up or maybe seeing the sun go down or letting you feel it on your skin can lead to you feeling unwell. We know that the air that you breathe, the amount that you get and the quality of the air that you get ultimately can lead to your brain becoming unwell. And then we know that the water that you drink, the type of water that you drink, what's in that water can lead to your brain becoming unwell. So your environment can make you unwell. So if that's the case, what do you do? Like, how do you manage this? The first concept is get as much nature as you can. As you can. Even if you're in that urban jungle, even if you find yourself living on a street where there is minimal to no trees and grass and the trees that are there planted in a, a small little square on a sidewalk, reach out. Most places have a park. Go to that park. Go to that park and just take your feet, shoes off and just stand in the grass and get that time in the environment. And even if you can't be around the sun or around the trees and the grass itself, just get outside. Get outside and let that sun hit your skin. Get outside and be around the bugs and be around the animals and be around this, all of the things that go with the world and be in nature the best you can. But if you can and you have the ability, seek out nature, seek out the trees, seek out the grass, seek out these, the water and the sand and the experiences. If you For the sunlight, you need that adequate sunlight. Um, Dr. Andrew Huberman, who's a, an expert in light, talks a lot about getting 30 minutes of sun every single day. 
if you can absolutely can know, we know there's certain parts of the world where that's not possible. We have certain parts of Finland, certain parts of Alaska, certain parts of the Arctic Circle. They don't have that that option. And so we see where even bright light therapies and things such as that can be helpful. So if you can't get sunlight, get the bright light and use those bright light lamps and you can get those online. There's a vast amount of them out there to treat depression and anxiety that is caused by an inadequate sun. But if you can get sun, get out, get that sun. Let it get on your skin, wear the short sleeve shirt, wear a tank top, whatever, and let your body, if you can, soak up that sun. If you can't, even if you're fully wrapped up in a coat, that's better than nothing. Get that sunshine. And you want to try your best as a human being to see the sun go up and see the sun go down. Meaning that you are up as the sun's coming up or before the sun comes up and you are looking outside in some form or fashion as the sun's going down. There's been great research to show how important it is to our circadian rhythms, how important it is within just the overall ability to even get to sleep. And then we also know how important it is to keep our brain functioning properly with the right nutrient that we need from the vitamin D, but then also the ability to kind of cleanse our body and kind of be in that natural clock with the world. So get 30 minutes of sun every day. Watch the sun not go up. Watch the sun go down. If you can't get the adequate sun, get that bright light. You can get the bright light therapy lamps online, and they can be life-changing. If air is a, is a challenge for you, whether it is the quality or the quantity, we know that those hypobaric chambers can be super, super helpful for people. It's not just for athletes. You know, many places, especially in the Rocky Mountains and in certain areas of the world, you'll see these places where you can get into these hypobaric chambers. You can get into these places that have different certain oxygen concentrations and get good oxygen. There's things such as oxygen bars, and even though they're like different colors and all these things, if you're just getting good air, that can be better than no air at all or really bad air. Uh, one interesting fact that they've seen is if you're living in the Rocky Mountain areas and you're, you are depressed or you're finding yourself getting depressed, one supplement that is being studied a lot is creatine. So for those who know, think of creatine, you probably think of like bodybuilders and athletes and growing muscle and uh, gaining water and all those things. But creatine is a naturally occurring building block and energy system for the human body. It occurs in meat. Um, we primarily get it from meats, but you can get it from certain other parts of um, an other animals. And, and really animal meat is, is the best way to get that creatine or supplements. And so we they have seen, there's been some great research conducted at the, the VA in um, Utah that has found that when people who were reporting of their being depressed in that Rocky Mountain area of that low, of that poor altitude, found that these people had low levels of what's called phosphocreatine. Phosphocreatine is what creatine is converted to primarily in the brain. We know that creatine can cross over into the brain, so it's not just for gaining weight and throwing on muscle and getting ripped. It's more. It's also about brain functioning and energy functioning in the brain and mitochondrial functioning in the brain. And so we know that these phosph phosphocreatine levels can become decreased. And so when you augment with the supplementation of creatine, what they found was the people that were on an antidepressant, their antidepressant worked better in that place and the two that people's depression began to alleviate and this is really preliminary research but we know that creatine is a supplement that's good for the brain and can it be even more important in a place where you're already getting these low levels of low amount of oxygen into your brain and so being able to supplement with this energy compound that you're going to need oxygen to create anyways is really really important and can be very helpful so as we kind of put a bow 
on the five factors and, and why this has even occurred and what we even talk about. As we mentioned in episode one, there are a gamut of reasons why a brain becomes unwell. And unfortunately, in our culture, we spend a lot of time focusing on symptomology, diagnosing, and treating either with a pharmacological agent and sometimes a specific type of therapy. And what we've highlighted over the past five episodes is that there are true categories for why the brain gets sick. And in every one of these categories, if you can treat the underlying cause, you can make the brain well with minimal to no side effects. Much different than saying, I'm going to give you this pill. I'm going to hope that this pill works for you or because of the symptoms, I believe this pill is going to work for you. And you take it and it either works for a little bit and then it poops out. Maybe it's life-changing for you or maybe it causes somewhere it's side effect and you move on to the, a different one. One-third of people on antidepressants get better. One-third. And of that third, only a third will reach remission. There are a lot of other reasons. There are a lot of reasons why that occurs. But I believe truly the reason for that is that that illness that isn't responding to that medicine is not due to something that the medicine can fix. It's due to either nature deficiencies. It's due to a vitamin or nutrition deficiencies. It's due to some type of physiological cause that has created a change in the brain or it's due to some kind of life stress that continues to hit the brain and cause these chronic changes in the brain. Or it could just be due to a genetic disposition to something that has been triggered by something else. And if you can begin to change those other factors, it can get better. We know, I believe personally, that the genetic and the psychosocial probably find the most success with medicine. And I would say a large amount, not, I mean, I'm solely hypothesizing here, but I would say that one third that finds that success on those antidepressants in the STARD-E trial were probably in the more of the genetic range. Things that happened throughout life, it had triggered a gene, and now even when that emotion is experienced, it's exacerbated. Not that they can't get off that medicine one day, but that it's going to take a lot of work. And so if you're someone who's out there struggling with sadness or anxiety or you're just hurting or you have anger issues or whatever that looks like for your mental health, begin to evaluate why is my brain sick? Is it something that could be wrong with me physically? Is it something occurring in my overall life? Is it something that could be going on in my nutrition or in my vitamins or what I'm eating? Is it the air I'm breathing or the lack thereof? Is it the sun I'm getting or the lack thereof? Is it the ability to get in the environment? And if I can check all those boxes and I still feel depressed, that's where I believe medicine is the most helpful. And if you can catch these illnesses as they progress, because as we talked about before, it's a chronic progression. If you can catch it in that moment, I truly believe that you won't need that medicine to get up and get going to figure out if it's nutrition-based to figure out if it's environmental-based because there's a chance it may not even work. And even if it does, there's no guarantee that you need it. If you're, out, and if you're a helper out there 
you know, if you're a clinician, be thinking about these things when you see someone. Be thinking about the nutrition and the biology and the genetics and the stress and the psychosocial world and just your overall nutrition and your ability to get outside and the environment and begin to check these off in your assessments and be able to address each one of these components before you move forward with saying, yes, that is truly major depressive disorder. Yes, that is obsessive compulsive disorder. Address that first. Now, ultimately, for anyone who's struggling or also for a clinician, if you're in that place where you're wanting to hurt yourself and your your illness has progressed to that point, immediate treatment is needed. So I'm not saying that I'm suicidal, so you need to get a better diet. And so i got a plan to kill myself, so instead of seeking treatment, I'm going to just eat my way out of it. But once you get stable with that treatment, whether it be in the outpatient or inpatient setting, and you call that hotline or whatever that looks like, and you get through that, beginning to figure out what this change needs to be so you can become well. If you've been along with this journey, thank you for, for doing it. I hope that you take this, take this information, and you can disseminate it to other people, create awareness about why the brain gets sick, create awareness that there's a many, many reasons why it gets sick, and so we should all be thinking about that, whether it be a loved one who's ill, whether we are becoming ill, whatever that looks like for us, and beginning to get this discussion going that there's more reasons the brain gets sick than just waking up one day and being depressed and being on a medicine for the rest of our lives. So continue to challenge your thinking, continue to challenge the status quo when it comes to all things health. Find people who, if you're unwell, find people who want to talk about these things with you, who are open to this stuff. And if anything, just create awareness. The brains do become sick, but brains become sick for a lot more reasons than we realize.